My name is Cyrus Kambada, uh, PhD in nutritional biochemistry, co-founder of Mastering Diabetes. And my name is Robbie Barbero, Masters in Public Health, Public Health Advocate. I'm also the co-founder of Mastering Diabetes. And we are with SoFlow Vegans. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. On this episode, we have Cyrus and Robbie from Mastering Diabetes. They just released a brand new book called Mastering Diabetes, The Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently in Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Pre-Diabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. This was a fascinating conversation that we had. We are so excited to share it with you. And if you want to check out some of our past episodes, be sure to go on our website, soflowvegans.com slash podcast. There you'll get all of our past episodes. We're on episode 30 right now. So you'll see 29 other fantastic episodes. You can subscribe on all the platforms where we're available as well as leaving a review. We also want to thank our media coordinator and co-host, Alba Mendez, who does a fantastic job in helping us pull these episodes together. So with that being said, check out our episode on Mastering Diabetes. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast. I am one of your hosts and founder of SoFlow Vegans, Sean Russell. And today, I know it's it's becoming a running gag. We always say we have a special guest, and we do have a special guest. You know that whole shtick. But we have a really special lineup for you today. And as always, I'm going to hand over the reins to our co-host, Alba Mendez. Why, thank you, sir. Hey, guys, it's Alba. Welcome back to the podcast. And, here. And, <laughs> and, so and it's not one guest. It is actually two for one. You both get it. Everybody is going to get none other than Mastering Diabetes, Robbie and Cyrus. Welcome, guys. Yay. It's great to be here. This is really fun. All right. So we have a tradition on this podcast where we always want to start off with your vegan journey. How, and we're going to throw this first question to Cyrus and then Robbie, you can answer right after, but how did you get started on your vegan journey? I, let me preface it by saying this. I never grew up thinking or wanting to become a plant-based eater. It just happened to me. Um, When I was 22, I was diagnosed with, three autoimmune conditions. Uh, the first one was Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is oh, wow. autoimmune destruction of you know thyroid cells, which decreases thyroid hormone output, number one. Then I developed alopecia universalis, which is why I have no hair, no ear hair, nose hair, eyebrows, eyelashes, you name it, I got nothing. And <laughs> then for three, which is type one diabetes. And all three of them set in within like a six month period. Wow. Uh, so, the reason I knew that something was wrong with me was because uh, I had developed Hashimoto's hypothyroidism and alopecia, and it wasn't, you know, there's simple things. You can just sort of take a thyroid hormone supplement to, to make up for the thyroid that you're not making. With alopecia, whatever, you shave your head and you just move on with your life. 
But with type 1 diabetes, you don't just move on with your life. That is a showstopper. It basically forces you to have to make a lot of changes. So I was extremely thirsty all day long every day for like a three-day period. I was uh, drinking 17, 18 times a day. I was drinking two gallons of water. I was urinating frequently. Picked up the phone, called my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy. I said, Shanaz, what the heck is happening to me? And she's like, oh my God, you have type 1 diabetes. Go to the health center now. So I dropped everything I did, went straight to the health center. They, they checked me in, checked my blood glucose. Glucose was a 600. 600. Wow. That's six times higher than it was supposed to be. So you were pretty much and in almost ketoacidosis at this point. I was, I was in hardcore diabetic ketoacidosis, DKA for sure. And, you know, people discover that they have type 1 diabetes because they go through a similar process. They go into, you know, DKA, their glucose is alarmingly high. At that point, you have no choice. You go to the hospital, they start injecting insulin to make up for the insulin that your pancreas is no longer manufacturing, and it brings your blood glucose down. Within 24 hours, I got discharged from the hospital with a, a confirmed diagnosis of three autoimmune conditions, plus two types of insulin, a blood glucose meter, test strips, syringes, a carbohydrate counting guide, and a life alert bracelet that said, hey, I'm a, I'm a chronic disease patient. If you find me passed out on the sidewalk, please call 911, right? So imagine you're 22 years old, you're finishing college, you get diagnosed with three autoimmune conditions, you get all this like whole litany of diabetes medications, and they send you back home and they're like, have fun. See you later. Wow. All of a sudden, you're just like, oh, my Lord, what did I just do? What did I just do? Like, what did I do wrong? Right? They told me, the doctors told me at that time to eat a low-carbohydrate diet because that's the advice that the medical profession gives to anybody diagnosed with any form of diabetes. And so I did that. And the rhetoric is very simple. They say lower your carbohydrate intake and try and avoid eating foods like fruits and, and breads and cereals and pastas and try and eat more of the high fat, high protein foods like lean meat, turkey, uh, red meat, white meat, fish, chicken, eggs, eat those foods because those are going to help you control your blood glucose. So I said, great, I'm a 22 year old guy. I'm an athlete. I like playing soccer. I lift weights. You just gave me the greatest prescription I could ever ask for. So I, I went back to my house and I started modifying my diet and eating a low carbohydrate diet. And it was supposed to make my blood glucose more controllable, but it didn't. My blood oh. group, I wish, I wish I had like captured this in, in time and I wish you guys could have seen what my blood glucose meter was doing. But on any given day, I would check my blood glucose and you know, I have to check my glucose like eight to 10 times a day. And the what? numbers were a joke. It was, it was embarrassing how bad these numbers were. Greater than 150? Well, it would, it would rebound from hypo to hyperglycemia. It would go 50, 178, 122. 290, 137, oh. 84. And it was just like this, it was like a ping pong. It was just up, down, up, down, up, down. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? I don't understand, I don't understand. So I lived like that for a year. Glucose was all over the place. Insulin use was creeping up. Couldn't exercise the way I wanted to. My body felt stiff. stiff. I was tired all the time and I was like, this is, this is not working. So switched over my diet, I started eating a plant-based diet because I got introduced to the idea of eating a plant-based diet. I mocked it. I ridiculed it at first because I didn't know anything about it. And then I started eating it. And as soon as I did, I was like, oh my Lord, this is unbelievable. First thing I noticed was that 
it felt like I took a, a, a charger, like a, like a wall charger and stuck it into a socket. And all of a sudden I was like, boom, I just got like electrified with energy. Number two, felt way more hydrated. Number three, my blood glucose came down dramatically, very quickly. And as a result of coming down, I had to back off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself. So 45 units became 37, 32, 31, 29, 26, 23. And within one week, I had cut my insulin use by 40%, which was bonkers because I was eating five times the number of grams of carbohydrate per day. So boy with type 1 diabetes eats five times as much carbohydrate, is eating 600 grams of carbohydrate per day. Insulin use goes down. It's not supposed to happen. But I noticed that and I was like, well, this is fascinating. So put myself back to school. I went and got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry so that I could talk science and I could learn what the heck was happening inside of me. And while I was there, I started to learn that the thing that was happening to me had also been documented in the medical literature since 1920, 100 years ago. And there have been randomized clinical trials, randomized control trials since the 1920s, 1930, 1950, 1970, 1990, and beyond, all the way to now, that clearly describe this phenomenon in people with type 1 and people um, who have non-insulin dependent you know, type two diabetes. And at that point I was like, oh my Lord, there's like literally like a whole mountain of, of evidence here. This is unbelievable. Why do people do the opposite, right? Because again, the rhetoric in the world of diabetes is eat a low carbohydrate diet, the exact opposite, and do that to quote unquote reverse diabetes and do that to sort of improve your overall diabetes health. But yet the research says the exact opposite. So long story short, Robbie and I met along the way I learned his story, which you'll hear in a second. And the two of us decided to team up and turn diabetes into something that can be – to, to talk about diabetes and educate people how to adopt a, a plant-based diet so that they can reverse the underlying condition that causes blood glucose instability, which is called insulin resistance. And so by doing that, they can, you can apply it to all forms of diabetes and really get to the root cause of why blood glucose goes crazy and why it's fluctuating. And that's what we have been doing for the past three years, and we love every single moment of it. It kind of explains your name on Instagram. You're known as Mango Man, no? That's right, yeah. People call me the Mango Man because uh, I have this ridiculous obsession with eating lots of mangoes. And um, <laughs> 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 oh, I've learned, lots of people do as well. But yeah, that's my nickname. I love mangoes. It's one of my favorite fruits. And I have a doctor friend of mine that he over here in Miami Shores, he has like 12 different mango trees. So every June or late May, I, I've been picking his fruit for the last four or five years. And I just get it from many different trees. It's like the best. I am. Uh, you're making me jealous right now. Hey, okay. We're booking our flights. Like we're going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like that, uh, Robbie. Robbie, actually, when we met him at Balance for Life, he was kind enough and he uh, gave us a huge box of um, passion fruit when we met him a couple months back. So I noticed from your rack over here for our listeners, Robbie is actually sitting right in front of a fruit, literally a fruit rack. And yeah. I see papaya and uh, what is that? I see, is that persimmons? Yes, there's persimmons, hachia, fuyu, um, papaya. I got Namwa bananas, Tofu mangoes, Kent mangoes, white sapote. It's more than obvious that you guys are not afraid of fruit. So, Robbie, go ahead and tell us your um, your story. Yeah, so um, I kind of self-diagnosed myself with type 1 diabetes. I have two older brothers, and my middle older brother was diagnosed with type 1 nine years prior to me. 
Wow. So I was familiar with it. My family was familiar with it. And I said, Mom, I think I have diabetes. It's like, Steve. She said, no, no, you don't have diabetes. Don't be silly. So I said, okay, fine. And eventually my parents left town. They were, we were living in Minnesota at the time. They went to Florida to look at homes. If we were going to move to Florida, we did. I and- would too. Minnesota's too cold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, we moved to uh, the Sarasota-Bradenton area, uh, which is just such such better living conditions than Minnesota, <laughs> especially because I was a competitive tennis player. So wow. it was a much better environment to be in. And um, while my parents were out of town, my mom called to check in. I said, hey, how are things going? I said, mom, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping all the time. She said, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood glucose meter, and test yourself. And I did. And I was well over 400. So just like Cyrus said, that's four times as high as I should be. We went to the general doctor, got the diagnosis there. Then we went to the hospital and my parents flew home and I said, you know, I just remember my dad saying, it's just going to be an inconvenience. And I didn't have to stay very long at the hospital because we knew what to do. So I got to leave after one night. And that was my life with type 1 diabetes. That was the beginning. And my parents, they always wanted to make sure that we had the best medical care. So I was living in St. Cloud. We could just drive to Rochester, Minnesota to go to the Mayo Clinic. And just like Cyrus, the, you know, the standard advice is, you know, just limit your carbohydrates. Don't eat too much. Try and eat a balanced diet, essentially. And I had an endocrinologist there. I had a psychologist. I had a nutritionist. And they were just teaching the standard American diet, trying to make me feel normal. That was their key. You know, I was 12 years old at the time. They said, hey, we just want you to feel like you know, like all your other, you know, friends and you get to eat whatever you want. Just follow this, you know, the food pyramid and inject your insulin properly. So I did that and I started developing, you know, regular standard American symptoms. I was sick all the time. I had chronic allergies. So I would take Nasonex and Claritin D and still get sick every year. I had cystic acne, which is really frustrating. I'm telling you, I tried everything. I had pills, I had creams, I did laser treatments, I did microdermal brazier treatments where they like brush off your skin. Eventually they put me on Accutane, it was just everything. Um, I had plantar fasciitis, which is frustrating as a competitive tennis player, so that's a painful condition in the arches of your feet. And I had warts on my feet, so it was just, it was not good. But my dad sold supplements. So I was like, hey, wait a minute, like that was the beginning of me thinking that maybe nutrition is, there's something here, you know, what I put in my mouth, whether that's food or whether that's added supplements can impact my health. And that was the beginning of me starting to make changes. And eventually, when I was in high school, I stumbled across this book. It's called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. And this is a book I do not recommend, okay? Uh, the guy was put in jail for fraud and it's just a a rough situation. But the book planted a seed in my mind that, you know what, maybe it's possible to get my beta cells to work again and to reverse type one diabetes. So that's what happened in there. And I just like went on a tirade. I will do anything and everything to try and get my body to make new beta cells. That was the mindset. So I did a bunch of things. I did the Weston A. Price Foundation. Um, and that's where you have lots of grass-fed beef and you have, you know, raw milk. I remember I'd go to the farmer's market and buy milk for cats because you can't sell raw milk to humans. And, uh, that was part of the the Weston A. Price situation. And, uh, I did that diet. I saw maybe a little bit of improvement because I cut out a lot of junk food, but nothing really significant happened for like my diabetes health. And then the next diet I tried was a... Gabriel Cousins uh, phase one diet. 
So this is basically a plant-based ketogenic diet before ketogenic diets were popular. And I would eat lots of oil, lots of nuts and seeds, like sesame oil was part of it, lots of sesame seeds, cashews, almonds, walnuts, stuff like that, but lots of greens as well. Greens and some non-starchy vegetables like bell peppers could be included in there, Um, lots of broccoli, that's cauliflower, but if you had too many of those, you'd exceed your carbohydrate count for the day. So I'd have 30 grams of net carbohydrate on that diet. And the problem there was I was a freshman at the University of Florida and I just had no energy. There were several instances where I basically blacked out on campus and I was scared at this point. I'm like, wait a minute. All my college friends are eating whatever the heck they want. They're feeling fine. Everything is good. I'm trying this special diet, not eating at the cafeteria, you know, going to the natural food store. And I'm feeling like crap, like blacking out, losing weight. Like this is just ridiculous and scary. So I go back to my naturopath. I'm like, okay, what can we do next? Again, the mindset here is always, what can I do to get my beta cells to work? So the naturopath says, you know what? Maybe we can try some chelation therapy and do some like cleansing and stuff like that. And so I'm like, hmm, okay, I'll, I'll consider it. And I would have had to drive to Tampa, Florida from Gainesville. So this is like a pretty big commitment. And I thought about it. But before I made that commitment, which I was ready to make, I heard a podcast talking about eating fruits and vegetables and how that can also be, you know, a cleansing food that can also help you get rid of heavy metals and stuff like that or a cleansing way to live. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. This guy's saying I can eat all these fruits and vegetables and get the same result. I don't have to drive all this way to do this special therapy. I'm like, wait a minute. Let me, let me give this a shot. So his book comes out. This is, this is in September of 2006. And the book comes out. And it's, uh, it was unbelievable. Like the book was mind-blowing. It literally opened up my eyes. And Cyrus was one of the testimonials in the book. So oh, wow. back of the book, he's, his story about what he learned and what changed from him when he went to Doug Graham's retreat and his transformation was there. I was like, wow, that's really cool. And so this was the beginning of me starting to eat this fruit-based lifestyle. And lots of fruit, lots of vegetables. So I'll eat somewhere around like 700 grams of carbohydrate per day, inject 27 units of insulin per day, which is a physiological normal amount. If you're living with type 1 diabetes, if your beta cells are damaged and you need to inject insulin, you want to inject the same amount your pancreas would have normally secreted while following a healthy diet. That's the goal. And that's what Cyrus and I both do while, again, eating large amounts of whole carbohydrate-rich food, people think, wow, that's, that's not possible. Like, most people look at what we eat and they're like, wait a minute. If I ate what you did, I would have to do like 20 units at one meal. I mean, yeah. if you're at a 5 to 1 ratio, you're at a 10 to 1 ratio, like, you literally would need 20 units of insulin for the same lunch that Cyrus and I have, and we're injecting you know, 3 to 5 units of insulin. So really, it, it messes with people's mind when they understand it. But the, the key thing is to go beyond just this impact of what does it mean for type 1 diabetes, which is great and it's important. But this whole concept of insulin sensitivity and what we're seeing in our own bodies and then seeing in the research truly is the solution for pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes in the sense that, that those conditions can be completely eradicated when you're producing enough insulin. So an insulin-dependent type 2 is more like a type 1 because their beta cells are exhausted. But if you're early stages and you have plenty of insulin production within your own body, then the, really the goal is, and we state this very clearly in our book, the goal is to get your own insulin to work so efficiently that you don't need any medications, you don't ever need to test your blood glucose, your A1C is in a non-diabetic range, and you just don't have to think about diabetes anymore. And that's for 
you know, 90 to 95% of the 110 million people living with diabetes. So um, there's a lot of people to help here. And uh, we, we're really, we're going after it. And you mentioned there's 110 million people infected, uh, impacted by, infected and impacted by diabetes. So for those of us out there that may have a family member or know someone that is impacted by it, but may not know exactly what it is because it's not, they're not going through it personally. What are the different types of diabetes that are out there? Okay. So that's a great question. Um, there are many forms of diabetes and it can get pretty confusing because it's almost like there's, there's so many types at this point that it's like, ah, it's too much. But let's just try and keep it real simple, real straightforward. Uh, number one, type one diabetes, which is what Robbie and I live with. It's an autoimmune version of diabetes that generally speaking affects people under the age of 30 years old. Okay. It used to be known as um, adolescent diabetes a couple, like maybe 10, 15 years ago. Exactly right. It used to be called juvenile onset or adolescent diabetes because it primarily affected, you know, adolescents. Now, um, there's another type of diabetes called type 1.5 diabetes. And 1.5 diabetes is autoimmune diabetes, just like Robbie and me, except it affects people over the age of 30 years old. And it is, it is a slower progressing autoimmune diabetes. And so you can think of it as basically adult onset, slow progressing type 1 diabetes. Okay? So those are type 1 and 1.5. They're both autoimmune. Now, there's prediabetes, which is affecting uh, you know, 85 plus million people in this country. And worldwide, the numbers are you know, in the hundreds of millions. Um, and prediabetes is basically what happens to you when you have developed insulin resistance and that insulin resistance has started to negatively impact your ability to control your blood glucose. The, the way that somebody would know that they're living with prediabetes is they would go to the doctor for like an annual checkup, like a routine physical, and their doctor would take one of multiple tests. They would either do a fasting blood glucose or they would do an A1C or both. If your fasting blood glucose is between 101 and 125 milligrams per deciliter, then that technically means that you have prediabetes. So you're sort of like in the warning zone before you develop type 2. Another thing is if they check your A1C level and your A1C is between 5.7% and 6.4%, then you're living with prediabetes. So uh, this you know, hits the majority of the U.S. population. Now, if you're diagnosed with prediabetes, and you don't do anything about it, or prediabetes gets worse, or you ignore it, and you become more insulin resistant over time, prediabetes can turn into type 2 diabetes. And once you have type 2 diabetes, then your fasting blood glucose goes even higher. It goes beyond 126 milligrams per deciliter. And your A1C also goes higher. It goes beyond 6.5%, which means that you're sort of, you're in a state where you have significant problems controlling your blood glucose, but the kicker is that type 2 diabetes is still reversible in like 80 to 90% of all cases. So even though you went from insulin resistance to prediabetes to type 2 diabetes, it doesn't mean that like you're, you're screwed and that you can't do anything about it. If you adopt the right lifestyle to make yourself incredibly insulin sensitive, then you can go from type 2 back to prediabetes and then from prediabetes back to non-diabetic. Okay? Now – the final version of diabetes that we'll talk about is called gestational diabetes. That affects women who are pregnant. 
you can think of it as being like a temporary state of diabetes whereby you you demonstrate that your ability to control your blood glucose is compromised. And so gestational diabetes is, is important because for two reasons. Number one, it can, it can negatively affect the health of your baby. But number two, women who are diagnosed with gestational diabetes are at a significantly increased risk for the development of type two diabetes after pregnancy. So they're living with prediabetes now, even if they get rid of it or they deliver a baby and it goes away, three, four, five, 10 years down the road, they can get hit with type two diabetes because their risk is significantly elevated. Robbie, you, I heard you say when with you and Cyrus having type one diabetes, that means that what cells are affected that does not help with the production of insulin? Yes, the beta cells inside our pancreas are no longer producing insulin. They've been damaged. That's why type one has no cure. Well, technically, yes. That's true, um, but what's happening in type one is there are antibodies that are present. That's also happening in type 1.5 diabetes. So there's about five specific diabetes antibodies, and when they're present, that is indication that beta cells are continuously being destroyed. So even if your body makes new ones, they are still being destroyed. Whereas in people living with type 2 diabetes or, or non-insulin dependent type 2 diabetes, there is research that can show they can create new beta cells. When there's no antibodies present, beta cell function can improve and they can gain and, and improve their ability to secrete insulin. Um, I'm not going to say like it's convincing, like you can just completely fully regenerate all your beta cells after they've been destroyed. That's not the case. But there does seem to be an ability to improve beta cell function. And again, like Cyrus said, a vast majority of people um, can get to a place where they don't need to inject insulin, they don't need to use any diabetes medications, because what they've simply done is they have maximized the efficiency of the smaller amount of insulin they produce. And that's where there's this amazing tie-in between our personal stories and, and, and type ones and the type two world in the sense that Cyrus and I and all our hundreds of clients who are type 1 who are doing this, um, we are every single day, every single meal displaying how you can eat a healthy, whole carbohydrate-rich meal for a very small amount of insulin, which then ties into the fact that, hey, if you're a type 2 and you're maybe producing a little bit less than you used to, let's make that small amount work just as efficiently as it is for Cyrus and myself. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Big time. Very cool. much so. <laughs> so how does diabetes occur? I mean, type one, we understand, but the mainly the biggest population right now is type two. How does type two occur? Okay, so type two diabetes is, you're right, it, it affects 92% of the diabetes population. And it's like, it's the reason why, you know, there's a huge, uh, it costs so much money to treat diabetes. And it's the reason why uh, diabetes has become the seventh leading cause of death in the world, period, end of story. It's a big deal. Okay. Um, so what causes type two diabetes? Let's go back to what I was saying earlier. It's a domino effect. Insulin resistance is the first domino. Pre-diabetes is the second domino. Type two diabetes is the third domino. Just like what Robbie was saying. When you get to type two diabetes, it's still a reversible condition and it's still, you still have sufficient beta cell function in most scenarios. So it's not necessarily a question of like, what's wrong with your pancreas? 
It's a question of what's, what is wrong with your muscle and what is wrong with your liver, okay? So let's back up here. Insulin resistance is defined as a condition in which insulin has become less effective over the course of time. So when insulin cannot signal to tissues to uptake glucose out of your blood, then you have developed insulin resistance, okay? Now the question is, where is insulin trying to signal, okay? So insulin's job, insulin has a thousand roles in your body. It's, it's a powerful, powerful master hormone. And one of the, the main roles that it has is to knock on the door of your liver and knock on the door of your muscle and say, hey liver, hey muscle, there's glucose in the blood, would you like to take it up? And your liver and muscle under normal circumstances would respond by saying, yes, please give it to me. And they would talk to insulin and then they would allow glucose to come inside of the cells in, in the muscle and liver. Over the course of time as you develop insulin resistance, when insulin knocks and it says, hey, knock, knock, I got glucose in the blood, would you like to take it up? Your liver and muscle just don't respond to it as well. Why would this happen in the first place? There's many reasons why you can develop insulin resistance. First and foremost, you can develop insulin resistance by eating a diet that is high in saturated fat. And we know this from the research perspective because there's plenty of randomized control trials that have demonstrated that people who eat higher saturated fat diets or lower carbohydrate diets are at higher risk for insulin resistance. Number two, uh, in, saturated fat has a direct, direct negative impact on insulin and it happens within hours of eating a single high fat meal, okay? Um, and another thing that can cause insulin resistance is lack of movement. If you don't move your body, if you don't exercise, if you don't walk around, if you don't, if you don't use your muscles free, uh, if you're eating a significant amount of packaged and processed foods containing refined carbohydrates like pastries, cookies, crackers, chips, bread, cereals, pastas, things like this, you can significantly increase your risk for insulin resistance. Number four, if you live a high stress lifestyle, that can dramatically increase insulin resistance. Number five, if you're an alcoholic, significant alcohol intake can also increase insulin resistance, okay? So there's a number of things that can trigger this phenomenon, but in general, the reason, that the main influential reason why people with, in, in the, live in the United States are living in an insulin resistant state is because number one, they're eating a diet that is very high in fat and high in saturated fat. And number two, because largely the US population is relatively uh, sedentary. So you have a high fat diet plus lack of movement and the, those are the two main causes. Now, um, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast and they'll be like, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, a high fat diet does not cause insulin resistance. Okay, this is, this is a very, very contentious and extremely heated debate, which is happening in the blogosphere and on social media, and it's getting worse and worse and worse over time. The problem with this debate is that there's a lot of research, which is very confusing to interpret, um, but if you sort of take a look at the entirety of the research, what you find is that eating saturated fat has a direct negative impact on insulin function. Okay? So, point being is that when you eat a diet that's high in fat, the saturated fat comes in your mouth, it goes into your digestive system, it gets inside of your blood. Those saturated fat molecules, they get inside of your liver, they get inside of your muscle, they also get inside of your fat tissue. If they, if they, this is important, if the saturated fat molecules got only into your, into your fat tissue or your adipose tissue and they stayed there and only there, then diabetes probably wouldn't be a thing. It really wouldn't be a disease in today's world. The problem is that some of those fatty acids get inside of your muscle, I'm sorry, inside of your, liver, uh, your, your adipose tissue. In addition to that, some of those fatty acids get inside of your muscle. 
In addition to that, some of those fatty acids get inside of your liver. And when, over the course of time, if you accumulate excess saturated fat inside of your muscle and liver, then those two tissues respond by saying, I don't want all of this material. This is like, I'm, I'm overloaded with too much saturated fat. They can't really block fatty acids from coming in, so what they do is they block insulin. If they can block insulin from coming inside of the tissue, then what that means, or if they can block insulin from talking, then that means that they can block glucose from coming inside, and at least that's like a partial self-defense. So as a result of that, you eat a high-fat diet, you become insulin resistant, insulin doesn't really do as much anymore. So anytime you eat a carbohydrate-rich meal, whether that carbohydrate comes from refined sources or from whole sources like mangoes, papayas, bananas, apples, oranges, it could come from squash, corn, potatoes, sweet potatoes, it could come from beans, lentils, peas, whole grains, quinoa, uh, rice, millet, you name it. Anytime there's carbohydrate energy that comes into your mouth, that carbohydrate gets broken out into glucose. Glucose tries to get inside of your liver, tries to get inside of your muscle, and the insulin is knocking and it's saying, hey, I got this glucose, I got this glucose, do you wanna take it up? There's this overaccumulation of saturated fatty acid, let me get rid of that stuff first. So as a result, glucose gets trapped inside of your blood. So the typical experience that people uh, ex have is that they eat a low carbohydrate diet first. That's the first thing they do. And then they subsequently try to eat a carbohydrate rich food and it doesn't work, their blood glucose goes high. And they say, look, I ate a banana, and my blood glucose went high. That means the banana's bad for me. I ate a potato and my blood glucose went high. That means the potato's bad for me. I shouldn't eat a potato. And this further fuels this idea that carbohydrates are bad for you and they're gonna cause high blood glucose. But it's, again, it's not the banana's fault. It's not the potato's fault. It's everything that you ate before that that caused the traffic jam that led to an inability to process glucose and use it properly as a fuel. The answer is, Eat a diet that's lower in saturated fat, dramatically lower in saturated fat. Eat a diet that is more plant-focused, more plant-forward, because it's naturally lower in saturated fat and higher in micronutrients. And if you were to do that, then in a short period of time, your liver and muscles can burn the existing saturated fatty acids they have outside of them. And as a result of that, insulin becomes more efficient, more effective, more usable, more, uh, more tissues become more responsive to insulin. That means that small amounts of insulin can now get glucose out of your blood exactly the way it's designed. So to answer a long-winded way of saying what causes type 2 diabetes, what causes type 2 diabetes is a, is a, a diet that's, that's uh, high in fat, that's specifically high in saturated fat, that leads to insulin resistance, that leads to prediabetes, that leads to the development of type 2 diabetes. At all points along the way, you can correct it and, and move towards a diet that is lower in saturated fat and lower in calories as well, and as a result of doing that, now you can dramatically improve your metabolic health and get rid of this blood glucose fluctuation that we recall diabetes. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And so my understanding of diabetes without knowing the medical side or hearing anything that you just said, you laid it out perfectly, I was under the misconception that it was sugar about sugar, the amount of sugar that you have in your body. Now, you mentioned there's two conversations happening right now, and you laid out one part of the conversation. What is the other conversation, just in case it comes up, people know that this is the other train of thought that is leading to a lot of misconceptions about diabetes? 
Perfect. I'm glad you asked that question. The, here's the other conversation that's happening is, is, a, is a louder conversation. It's a more predominant conversation. And it's the conversation that most people believe to be true. And the conversation goes like this. Carbohydrates are bad for you. When you eat carbohydrates, carbohydrates break down into sugar. And when sugar is present in your blood, sugar increases insulin production and insulin demands and it makes you more insulin resistant, increases your risk for diabetes, and makes you fatter because insulin is your fat storage hormone. This is, this is the, 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 the things that you hear over and over again. Okay? Now, um, I will say that part of that story is absolutely true. And the part of that story that's true is that if you're currently living in an insulin-resistant state, Okay, because you've been eating a low-carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet or a high-fat diet over the course of time, then anytime you eat any food that's carbohydrate-rich, whether, again, it's refined, like a cookie, cracker, chips, soda, you name it, or whether it's whole, like potatoes and fruit, it doesn't really matter. Any of that carbohydrate energy um, gets broken down into glucose, not sugar, not sugar. It gets broken down into glucose. And the glucose is looking for a way to get inside of muscle and liver, and it can't because you're already in a high-fat environment, okay? So if the high-fat environment exists to begin with, then glucose metabolism gets shut down, and it gets inhibited or shut down. Um, but if you're not operating in a high-fat environment, you're operating in a low-fat environment, then insulin sensitivity is maximized, and as a result of that, when you eat something carbohydrate rich, the glucose from those carbohydrate molecules can easily get inside of your muscle and liver and you no longer have blood glucose control issues, okay? So what most people are told is that when you eat carbohydrate rich food, your blood glucose goes high. And it, it, that is a true experience for most people because like we're saying, the majority of people live in a high fat environment. And because you're already in a high-fat environment, then carbohydrate metabolism is, is, not, uh, is not very efficient. And this is true not only in humans. This is true in mice, in rats, in monkeys, in dogs. And you'll find a very similar conserved biology, which is that high-fat environments decrease insulin responsiveness or high-fat environments decrease insulin action. And um, so what, what I want people to understand is that if you are – are eating a low-carbohydrate diet or a high-fat diet or the standard American diet, which is a high-fat diet, and your experience is that carbohydrate-rich anything makes your blood glucose go up, rather than pointing a finger at the carbohydrate-rich food, stop, take a second, go backwards and say, what did I do that is causing this glucose traffic jam? And the development of insulin resistance first is now causing the glucose traffic jam, causing your blood glucose to go high. Is that making sense? Big time. So what are some of the labs that can help to determine? I know we already kind of mentioned it a little bit, but we haven't gotten into that, like the A1C, the blood sugar tests. Okay. So there's a number of different tests that you can take to sort of determine your, your, your status, whether you're living with diabetes or not. Um, there's, I w I'm going to call out four tests that I think are important. Number one, fasting blood glucose test. If you get a fasting blood glucose and your fasting blood glucose is over 100, that means that there is a problem. Again, if you're between 100 and 125, that means you have prediabetes. If you're over 125, that means you have type 2 diabetes. 
That's the first test. The second test is called fasting insulin. If you go to the doctor, they test your fasting insulin. If your fasting insulin is greater than five microunits per mil, mm -hmm. what that means is that you're living in an insulin resistant state. It means your, 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 your pancreas is having to work pretty hard in order to manufacture a lot of insulin. You want your insulin production to be low. So anything over five is considered uh, you know, insulin resistant and or and as, as it creeps up towards 10, 15, 20, 25 and beyond, that means you're, you're more and more diabetic. The third test is called your A1C. Your A1C is just like an average marker of like three months worth of blood glucose values. Non-diabetic, 5.6 or below, 5.6% or below. Pre-diabetic, 5.7 to 6.4. And then type two is 6.5 and beyond. The last test is called a C-peptide test. And the C-peptide test basically is a test that you can take that measures how much insulin your, your beta cells are capable of manufacturing. And that's an important variable to add to this equation because if Robbie and I went and got a C-peptide test, the answer would be zero. We don't make any insulin. We have type one diabetes. We're done. Mm -hmm. Your average person living with you know, insulin resistance will have a high C-peptide value because they're over-manufacturing a lot of insulin. And as somebody with type 2 diabetes, we're going to have like a medium to low C-peptide value because they're not able to manufacture enough insulin. So if you kind of put all these things together, then you can figure out, oh, my glucose is high and my C-peptide value is low. Therefore, that means that blank, you know. So you, you kind of have to like work with your medical team to figure out what it actually means. But those are the tests that I think are the most, um, the most telling of what's actually happening inside your body. And, and what are what are some of the things that could happen to us, to the human body, to our overall health, if we are not keeping track of our, of our diabetes or if we go undiagnosed for a long time? What are some things that potentially harm us? Okay. So if you're living in an insulin-resistant state, whether or not you have already been diagnosed with, with some form of diabetes or not, uh, insulin resistance increases your risk for many chronic diseases. Number one, fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. Number two, chronic kidney disease. Number three, heart disease. Heart, the, the, the number one cause of death for people living with diabetes is heart disease. You don't die of diabetes, you die of heart disease. You die of chronic kidney disease. You die of kidney failure, you die of uh, liver necrosis. Okay. A number, another thing that can happen is you can develop what's called peripheral neuropathy, which is nerve damage inside of your hands, inside of your fingers, inside of your toes, your legs. It feels like lightning bolts. Um, when your glucose gets elevated, nerves get annoyed, they get aggravated, they lose function. Peripheral neuropathy is a big deal. Uh, number four, you can also get significant blood flow problems. And when you have blood flow problems in your extremities, that can lead to limb amputations. So you'll see these pictures online of, you know, Oh, my dad had type 2 diabetes. How did he have his foot amputated? And the reason is because his foot was functioning fine. It's the blood vessels in his foot which stopped working very well. And as a result of that, his, his foot got starved for blood. And now he had to have it amputated. Another thing that can happen is called retinopathy. The, the blood vessels in your eyes can get really aggravated. And you, your vision can start to go uh, blurry. And as a result of that, you can end up developing blindness. And then finally, there's a, a new area of research that actually shows that as you become more insulin resistant, uh, your risk for cognitive decline, otherwise known as Alzheimer's and dementia, goes dramatically higher. So there's this huge like dementia and Alzheimer's epidemic that's happening right now. 
And um, there's a lot of research that actually shows that insulin resistance is a is a risk factor for developing uh, cognitive decline. A lot of my patients in the hospital who have diabetes either are blind, they're on some type of dialysis, or their kidney function is shot, or they're coming in with heart attacks and strokes, or they're Alzheimer patients that are literally laying in a bed and all I have to do is just check their sugar and send them on their way. Yeah, it's a serious, serious problem. It's like my my um, PhD advisor when I was in school, he, he came into me one day, he goes, pop quiz, how many people have died from diabetes in, you know, in the history of you know, the 19th century. And I was like, or the, the 20th century. And I was like, oh, I don't know, 50 million, a hundred million. He goes less. And I was like, 10 million, less, 1 million, less. What? A hundred thousand less. He goes, he goes, the number is very, very close to zero. They diabetes, die of the complications of diabetes. And I was like, oh, point proven. He's like, the number's not actually zero. The number is the low number. But the idea is that diabetes is the first domino in a series of chronic diseases that eventually causes organ failure, and then boom, you die from one of those complications. Another thing that we really don't talk about, and Robbie, I wanna get your input on this, is that um, Cyrus did mention that the extremities get affected because of the nerve function. But a lot of people don't talk about, especially in the male anatomy, that can affect sexual function as well. Absolutely, I mean, one of our coaches, Mark Ramirez, openly talks about <clears throat> erectile dysfunction, and. What's funny is he actually had a, a, has a brother who talking about amputations is like real. I mean, he reversed his type two diabetes and reversed erectile dysfunction, got a bunch of other medications, and his brother like decided not to make any lifestyle changes and continued to progress and progress until he had to have like his legs amputated. So it's it's really incredible um, how it's really the it's control is in your hands like you get to choose what you want to have here happen and um erectile functions you know in forks over knives terry mason said you know it's the canary in the coal mine it's a warning sign that you're on your way to heart disease you have a blood flow problem so um it could be a wake-up call and you know we like to teach it all all these conditions can be a blessing in disguise could be a real opportunity to truly turn things around you know, turn around your, your sexual health, but also more importantly, your, your heart health and tissues all throughout your body and live a longer, healthier, active life because these conditions woke you up. Huh. Dr. Spitz, we did a podcast with him a couple months, back in December, actually, not a couple months back, but back in December. And he also discusses that, that some of the first early warning signs of either diabetes or cardiac issues happens to be erectile dysfunction in men because yes. there's no erection there is no blood flow or the blood flow is impeding to that particular area absolutely so let's discuss now um the lack of education that some of these diabetic educators and registered dietitians have because i know cyrus has mentioned that when he first got diagnosed at 22 they were giving him okay well you cannot eat this 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 but have meals uh, high in animal product in general, but somehow fruit and vegetables were not included. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So I want to preface this by saying that uh, doctors are amazing people, nurses, certified diabetes educators, nutritionists, you name it. Um, they're very altruistic. They want to help people. So don't interpret anything I'm saying as though you know I have a vendetta against any medical professional. The truth is that 
even though medical professionals have the greatest intentions, they're only as good as their training. Uh-huh. And if you're trained in a system that doesn't prioritize nutrition education that's evidence-based, then you have a problem. Your average doctor is taught medicine and is able to learn medicine and practice medicine in a clinical environment for 10,000 hours during graduate school, okay? During their four years in medical school plus a rotation plus residency. Um, Of those 10,000 hours, they learn 20 hours of nutrition. And I can tell you with confidence that having studied nutrition for 15 years, um, the more that I study, the more that I realize I don't know anything, okay? If you try and learn anything in 20 hours, you can barely scratch, you can't even scratch the surface. It's the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg, right? So we cannot rely on doctors as, you know, and nurses are in the same category. We cannot rely on them to, uh, you know, for as, as authorities on nutrition. Again, they're not bad people. They just don't have the training. And so what we have to do is look to people who actually do have the training and do have the evidence-based knowledge. And it turns out that there's many there's many doctors now that spend a lot of a lot of time reading the research, mm-hmm. okay? Or there are nutrition professionals who have spent a lot of time reading the research, and not until you read the research and really devote yourself to understanding what nutrition is and how complex it can be, that's when you actually have you can consider yourself an authority on the subject. Uh, but anything other than that just you know doesn't lend you to being credible. That's all. Why is there that fear of carbs and fruit? That's the part that I'm still a little iffy about. The fear of carbs and fruit is because if you're performing experiments in people who are insulin resistant, you will find that feeding carbohydrate-rich food causes problems. Mm -hmm. If you're performing experiments in people who are truly insulin sensitive, then feeding carbohydrates does not cause problems. So the research is full of investigations demonstrating that when you feed people with carbohydrate-rich food, it causes blood glucose elevations. Again, they're not doing a very good job of classifying their baseline level of insulin resistance. So the research has become clouded and difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the type of carbohydrate also matters. There's so many studies that demonstrate that, oh, you know, a high-carbohydrate diet is bad for people. It increases you know, liver fatty acid deposition. Then you look in the paper and you try and find out, well, what kind of carbohydrate were they feeding? And the answer is, a sugar-sweetened beverage, Hmm. right? Or the answer is we told people to eat three pieces of bread and um, a cupcake, you know, with a banana. And you're like, you got to be kidding me. You're doing research on a cupcake? Why are we even investing money in this? It just doesn't make any sense, right? So the research has become confusing. Yeah. Um, And and then um, add to that the fact that when people adopt a ketogenic diet, they see the exact opposite. All of a sudden, they lose weight, they drop their cholesterol, they drop their blood pressure, A1C falls, fasting insulin falls, and now they're like, cool, this is the solution to type 2 diabetes. And the answer is, it's not a solution. It's a really, 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 really good, it's a very convincing Band-Aid. But in the future, your risk for type 2 diabetes actually goes up. And Uh-huh, yeah, I agree. There's actually a recent study that was published uh, not too long ago about uh, a two-year ketogenic inter- intervention in more than 260 individuals. So they took 260 people living with type 2 diabetes, put them through a ketogenic diet, and mm-hmm. found, and then you know, classified, the, the story that they told the world is that, hey, look, we are reversing type 2 diabetes. This, this intervention is reversing type 2 diabetes. If you do a deep dive into the data, what you'll find is that after two years, their fasting blood glucose was 137, 
folks, which was diabetic, their fasting insulin was 16, which is insulin resistant. Their A1C values were 6.7%, which is diabetic. Mm -hmm. Their LDL cholesterol values were elevated 111. Okay, that's that's increasing risk for a cardiac event. Um, and their C-reactive protein levels, which is a marker of inflammation, was also significantly elevated. So the research itself, the, the data tells one story, but then the conclusions of that, what's reported to the press, what gets on television, what people pass around social media is, look, a ketogenic diet reverses type 2 diabetes. And my answer is, no, it doesn't. It never has, it never will. What a lot of people don't know and don't realize, and again, this is coming from my own practice, um, I keep getting patients that are in their 20s, in their 30s, sometimes even up to their 40s who have been on these keto diets for so long, and we end up putting, how do I say it in a nice way, <laughs> pretty much I'm putting tubes in their necks or in their groins so they can go ahead and get dialysis because their kidneys are shot. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people don't say. They don't talk about that, that over time, a ketogenic diet, the keto diet, ends up killing your kidneys. Yes, exactly right. And, and you've seen that firsthand in the clinic. I do. Yes. I do in my, in my own practice. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, we've been talking about the problem and the challenges that people are facing when they are um, suffering from insulin resistance. So what are some of the solutions that we can take into our own hands to, to combat against, you know, these different phases? Well, in our book, we have outlined the solution and it's the mastering diabetes method, which has four components. The first component is low-fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition. The second component is intermittent fasting, then daily movement, and then daily documentation through a tool that we've created called the decision tree. But let's focus on number one, low-fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition. We have created very simple, easy-to-follow guidelines for exactly what foods to eat. We've put it into a traffic light system of green light foods, yellow light foods, and red light foods. The green light category, these are foods that we suggest people eat in large quantities when they're hungry until they're satisfied. So this is fruits like bananas, pears, apples, mangoes, then starchy vegetables such as potatoes, yams, butternut squash, then beans, and you have lentils in that category and peas, okay? And then intact whole grains such as farro, brown rice, millet, quinoa. Those are all in the green light category. In addition to that, you have foods like non-starchy vegetables, that's broccoli, cauliflower, um, bell peppers, then leafy greens, we're talking kale, spinach, arugula, romaine lettuce, red leaf lettuce, butter lettuce. We also have herbs and spices and mushrooms. So these are all in the green light category. Now, fruits and starchy vegetables and legumes and intact whole grains, those are the first foods because in order to succeed on this diet long-term, You have to learn how to eat food that's going to satisfy you from meal to meal. People can get short-term success by eating a lot of salads, but eventually they get hungry and they start eating foods they ate previously. And now they're saying, oh, wow, the diet failed me. It didn't work. That's because you didn't eat enough food. You weren't eating enough calories. And you actually get to eat larger volumes of food. 
And we know a lot of people living with diabetes, they're, they're scared of those foods. They get it for all the good reasons that Cyrus just explained. But you really got to understand that these foods are the solution. As you become more insulin sensitive, you get to eat them and your body can metabolize the carbohydrates in them very easily and efficiently. Now, the yellow light category, these are foods we suggest that people eat in smaller quantities. They're still healthy. There's still many whole foods in here, but they're either higher in fat or they're a little bit more processed. So yellow light foods include nuts and seeds, avocados, coconut meat, olives, and soy products. So edamame is the most whole intact form of soy that you could eat. And that's good, it's healthy. It's just 40% of calories coming from fat, which is gonna easily exceed the guideline that we have, which is no more than 30 grams per day or not exceeding 15% of total calories coming from fat. That's the clear guideline that we're offering to maximize your insulin sensitivity. Now, the other foods in the yellow light category include breads, so something like Ezekiel bread, we're gonna put that in the yellow light category, millet bread, even though it's clean, doesn't have a lot of additives, no added sugar, it's just you know the finest bread product you can buy, it's still in the yellow light category because it's processed, and it's higher in calorie density. And most people are trying to lose weight living with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. It's better to eat millet than millet bread, okay? And the same thing when it comes to um, something like brown rice pasta. Brown rice pasta is gonna be, brown rice is gonna be better than brown rice pasta. And we also put fermented foods in the yellow light category. They're good, they're healthy. Again, include them in your diet. It's just not something to eat in unlimited quantities. That's the key distinction between the green light and yellow light. Your fermented food's gonna be high in sodium. So you gotta just be careful about the quantity you're having. Like the sauerkraut. Rest, what's that? Like sauerkraut. Yeah, of course, yeah, it's fine. Just We're not saying go to town on it. Making that clear distinction. Um, then when it comes to red light foods, these are gonna be animal products. So that's red meat, that's chicken, that's fish, that's eggs. We also have oil products in there, or just oil in general. And then processed foods like Impossible Burgers and veggie burgers and soy ice creams. These are foods that are just, they're just too high in fat. There's just too many additives. It's not gonna help you get the results you're looking for. So that's in the red light category. And when people emphasize the green light foods, eating more and more and more green light foods, those are the people we see getting the best results. The most significant weight loss, the biggest drop in their A1C and their fasting blood glucose, they gain the most energy, they just flat out get the best results. And what about fasting? How does fasting play a role in improving okay. their condition? Uh, fasting is, is one of our favorite techniques. Um, it's, uh, intermittent fasting has become a very big deal, and fasting is a technique that you can use to accomplish a number of things. Number one, you can, you can perform fasting to lose weight. And in the world of type two diabetes in particular, um, there's many studies that show if you just lose weight, you just go from being overweight to normal weight, then most of the time, diabetes or prediabetes just disappears, and that's awesome. So intermittent fasting is something that you can implement to accelerate the rate at which you lose weight or to give you an edge so that you can lose weight. But in addition to that, even if you're not losing weight, uh, intermittent fasting is a really powerful tool that alters the biology of your muscle and liver dramatically. And it alters the biology in such a way that both of those tissues are forced to spend extended periods of time uh, housekeeping or basically cleaning up a lot of the sort of like inflammation and excess accumulation of, of lipid and saturated fat that they've accumulated over the course of time. So there's experiments to show that in, you know, 
individuals that fast for 16 hours a day, 18 hours a day, um, they actually can dramatically improve insulin sensitivity in a very short period of time. I'm talking within days. So if you were to implement that on a daily basis and keep that constant, then you can actually use it as, as a powerful insulin sensitizer, even if your rate of weight loss isn't really that high. With the cost of diabetes, we already answered that, that it is astronomical and it keeps going higher and higher the more people are not educating themselves. They're not getting the education that they need because also drugs cost money. I mean, I, I don't I don't know we're allowed to say, I don't think so, but some of the medications like with insulin, commercial insulin either comes from bovine or from swine. Mm -hmm. And then there's many things out on the market. We have the pen, we have metformin, we have Genuvia. There's always something new coming out. And some of these medications also affect other organs of the body. Yeah, so we have an entire chapter. So, So let me preface this by saying we wrote a book and the book is that you can see on the screen right now, if you're, if you're just listening to this, it's called Mastering Diabetes. <laughs> this book basically goes into like painstaking detail here about what is diabetes, what causes it, and how can you, how can you truly reverse this insulin resistance issue? Okay, so it's, a, it's a, a book that has more than 800 scientific references in it because mm -hmm. we wanted to make sure that as we were going through this, we were trying to be as impartial as possible. We didn't want to be those guys who were just finding research to back up our already um, preconceived notion that a plant-based diet is good for you. We wanted to find a lot of data that actually showed the benefits of a low-carbohydrate diet and you know, tried to really investigate as, as unbiased as possible. So that's what you know, you'll find in this book. Now, to answer your question about you know, medications, we have an entire chapter on medications, and, and it goes into a lot of detail here about what are commonly prescribed medications for diabetes, what do they do and how can you get off of them? And what are the dangerous side effects of them? And there's all types of side effects. There's different, there's different types of drugs. There's SGLT2 inhibitors. There's DPP4 inhibitors. There's, there's, uh, um, there's what do you call them? I'm blanking on the name. Uh, type of diabetes medication that stimulates your beta cells to produce more insulin. Right. Um, there's thiazolidine diones, you name it. There's a whole collection of medications that, um, you know, we go into painstaking detail about the actual uh, side effects of them. And so mm -hmm. if you're interested in learning about that, and then most importantly, how to use your food as your ultimate medication, that's what you'll find in this book. So you can find this book on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes & Noble. Just go, go to Amazon and type in Mastering Diabetes, and it'll pop up right away. I really love that. Really quick, uh, Robbie, since you were diagnosed at age uh, 11, would this book help people who have kids that might have been diagnosed with diabetes or is diabetic in children a little bit different? So yes, there's no question that this approach can be used for, for all ages, no matter what form of diabetes people are living with. Um, now, it is definitely more challenging to manage the blood glucose level of a child um, and adding carbohydrate-rich food can make it even maybe potentially a little bit more challenging, but the bottom line is it's challenging no matter what. So even if you go and try and do some super low carbohydrate ketogenic diet or something, it's still gonna be challenging, but you're also gonna have other consequences for your child's future. So um, we definitely recommend that people gain knowledge, okay? Parents, the best thing they can do is gain knowledge. So read this book, understand insulin resistance, understand all the tips and tricks we provide for um, insulin-dependent diabetes, 
to make your blood glucose easier to manage or make your child's blood glucose easier to manage. Understand the benefits of fiber, of high water content, of insulin timing, and all that stuff. In addition to reading other books, like I would recommend the Forks Over Knives Family book. So if you're a parent, you have a young child, gain more information about the whole journey of raising your child on a healthy plant-based diet through additional resources and gain the confidence, look into the evidence-based literature to really feel good about what's going on and then use our book for the specific diabetes tools. And with that, we've reached the end of the podcast. And before we say our goodbyes, I want to give the floor to both of you. If there's any closing remarks, anything that we maybe didn't touch on that you definitely want the audience to know about. Yeah. Um, what I want the world to understand is that um, nutrition has become overly confusing in this day and age. And there's a lot of conflict in the world. And it's just like it's frustrating. The, the thing that happens when there's a lot of conflict is that a lot of people get apathetic and they just say, you know what, even the experts can't agree. I, like, they don't know what they're talking about, therefore I'm going to do nothing. What I would encourage people to, to understand is that there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of you know, tension, but the true power of a plant-based diet is so incredible and if, if the power of a, of a whole food plant-based diet, especially one that is lower in its total fat content. If you're living with any form of diabetes, any form of heart disease, any form of kidney uh, disease or fatty liver problems, please, please, please open your mind to the idea that a plant-based diet is a, is a very effective, not only short-term, but long-term solution. There's plenty of research. You can read all about it in our book. Um, you can also visit us online, masteringdiabetes.org, and learn more there as well. And if you're open-minded to that information, it can truly change your life for the better. And I'm just going to add to that, um, just give it a try. Just put, play with it in your own body, see what happens, and you'll understand through your own experience. Our book has meal plans, depending on how insulin resistant you are at your baseline. You follow the plan step by step, and we are confident you're going to feel like a million bucks. Amen. And Alba, any closing remarks? I want to thank so much Robbie and Cyrus. Cyrus is coming to us from Costa Rica. Robbie, all the way from California. Thank you guys for taking the time off uh, to talk to us and continue to educate on something that is such an important topic. So I want to thank you both. Thank you for taking the time. And we will see you next time on our next podcast recording. Yeah, and you guys make sure that if you want to listen to past episodes or get the show notes for this episode, go to soflowvegans.com slash podcast. We'll have all the links, anything that we talked about, just one place to go, get the links for the book and everything else. So thank you both so much for joining us for our podcast, and we will see everybody next time. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for listening. We want to thank Cyrus. We want to thank Robbie for Mastering Diabetes for coming on our podcast, talking about their new book, as well as just plant-based living and diabetes in general. So make sure that you go to our show notes on soulflowvegans.com slash podcast to get all of the deets regarding these amazing individuals. And we also want to encourage you to send us your questions. We're going to be taking your questions and having our guests answer them. And it could be episode 55. But the best way to get in that mix is by sending an email to contact at soulflowvegans.com. We would also like to hear what you think about the episodes. It really means a lot to us when we get feedback, 
whether it's positive or constructive. So once again, that email address is contact at soulflowvegans.com. So with that being said, we'll see you next time on the SoFlow Vegans podcast. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans podcast.